Have you ever done those, uh, it's kind of an icebreaker, crowd breaker type of game called Two Truths and a Lie? You ever, you ever been a part of that? Okay, Two Truths and a Lie, where you share three facts about your life, and everyone has to guess which one of those three statements is the lie, right? Which one is not true, which didn't happen. It's used a lot in, in big group situations to kind of get people mixing up. So let's do that this morning. Here are three statements about me. I was once nearly arrested while on a date. I have run a mile in under five minutes and 30 seconds. And I used to read Trivial Pursuit cards in my free time to practice. So one of those is the lie this morning. Um, mom, you're forbidden. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, don't watch my mom. Um, but uh, how many of you think the first one is a lie? First one didn't happen. Wow, thanks, church. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, how many of you think the second one is the lie? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I just need to go home right now. And how many of you think the third one's a lie? Anybody? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Somebody. Okay. Mercy. Mercy. Obviously, the running one is the fake news here. Um, I did, I did, not that far off. I did run cross country, but the best mile I ever ran was 551. I never did crack the 530 mark. So, uh, yes, that means I was almost arrested while on a date, but that's a story for another time, not for this morning. And yes, it also means I was the nerd who used to sit and read the cards from Trivial Pursuit to learn more random facts. I've always loved facts. I've loved facts. I loved random bits of information. I love trivia. I also am kind of obsessed when it comes to accuracy of information. Um, I, want, I want it to be right. I want it to be precise. Uh, even grammar. I, I tend to be that grammar nerd, too. Um, so much so that I got a side job for a few years as a professional proofreader for a secret shopper organization. Um, I, I love finding things that don't belong or are wrong and fixing them and making them right. Because a lot of things go unnoticed, don't they? They just kind of just pass through, especially proofread. If you are a proofreader like me by nature, I proofread everything. So when I'm reading something, somebody hands out something at, a, at an event or a bulletin or a brochure, if there's a mistake on it, my eye just kind of goes, what is that? I can't stay here any longer. You know, I mean, it's just those things just resonate with me. They just happen. Um, but th things are wrong, but people just accept them. And you really have to look carefully to identify the errors and put things as they should be. And that's kind of what this series is all about, identifying those things that are wrong and putting them as they should be. For the month of May, we're going to fact check some of the things that people say about the Bible, about how God works, about what he wants for us and what he wants from us. And we're going to identify those errors and we're going to set things right so that we can truly understand what the Bible says and how we can apply it to our lives. Because unfortunately, you may not have known this, there's a little bit of misinformation out there about God. Yes, it's true, about what the Bible actually says. Some are fairly innocuous, but other times it can be incredibly dangerous, the misinformation that is out there about God's word, the, mis the untruth that is out there. Well, untruth is a lie. The lies that are out there about who God is and what the Bible actually says. So let's dive into our first topic of the series and start our fact-checking with Christians aren't supposed to judge. Christians aren't supposed to judge. 
don't judge me. That's what I say every time I tell a dad joke. Um, but the phrase, don't judge me, is something we hear kind of as a joke sometimes, right? As in, hey, I like Big Macs, don't judge me, okay? You know, that type of thing. But we also hear it as a defense mechanism when we get caught taking part in something that we are pretty sure God would not approve of. You know, don't, don't judge me. Then again, maybe the Big Mac example is the same thing. You know, we get caught in something that God definitely wouldn't approve of. Uh, but we hear it from inside the church. We hear it from outside the church. Don't judge me. People don't want to be judged, right? I mean, here's the thing. If people say don't judge me, usually it's because they're already feeling guilty about what they did. They just don't want to hear it. But it can be argued that judgment is a problem in the church today. That the church has become known more for what it's against than for what it's for. And in some circles, in some aspects of the church today, I believe the church has become known more for what it's against than for what it's for. That we have an image problem. And even though an image problem might sound superficial in some cases, it's certainly not when it comes to the church because the church is called to be the image of Jesus. And so we need to have an accurate image of who Jesus is. We're an image bearer of Jesus to the world. And we're supposed to show the world what Jesus looks like, what his teachings look like when they're lived out. And if the church has an image problem, then the world will never see Jesus for who he really is. And I believe that the, the misshapen image sometimes that the church presents to the world of who Jesus is, is the reason that a lot of people never come to faith in Christ. Because they're not seeing an accurate representation of who Jesus is. So when people think about Christians in our world today, what thoughts come to mind? Many criticize the church, saying that Christians are narrow-minded, mean-spirited, a know-it-all bunch that walks around with their nose in the air, judging the rest of the world for their dirty, stinky sin. But can we agree this morning that that isn't what the heart of Christianity is all about? Um, Jesus said that we, his people, should be known for our love. That's what we should be known for. That's what we should lead with. It's love that differentiates us from every other group of people of organized religion in the world. Think about it. Sinners didn't see Jesus as a mean-hearted judge. Sinners did not see Jesus that way. In fact, the scripture tells us that the religious Pharisees, who were the religious leaders, criticized Jesus because he was a friend of sinners. And because he hung out with the tax collectors who cheated people for a living, who cheated their own people. They were Jews who cheated other Jews on behalf of the Romans and other people like them. The world knew that Jesus was a holy teacher, a holy person. They knew him as holy, as set apart. But they didn't feel condemned when they were with Jesus. They felt loved. So it can be done. It can be done to live righteously, to live holy, to live set apart, and to make the right choices, and yet not make the people around you feel condemned by the way that you have chosen to live your life and instead let them feel loved. It's possible. How do we know? Because Jesus did it. Remember that Jesus' harshest words were reserved for arrogant, judgmental leaders within the church. That's who really got Jesus' blood boiling was those people. But here's the thing. Jesus was pretty much never harsh to people outside the faith. 
In fact, the insiders didn't like him at all for precisely this reason. He was called, that phrase that I mentioned, friend of sinners, that was used as an insult to Jesus. It was supposed to make him feel bad. But that was his mission. Jesus came to be a friend of sinners, to love them. He helped. He practiced humility. He prayed for those who persecuted him, for those who were far from God. And that was the heart of Christ. It was evangelism. And judging those outside of his flock, even though no one had ever had, ever had more of a right to do so, Jesus could have judged everyone. And even though he will one day as they stand before God, after this life is over, Jesus will judge. And he will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. He will separate sin from holiness. And even though that will happen... If he had done that during his time on earth, it would have short-circuited the reason he came in the first place, and that was to show people the love of God lived out. But here's the thing. I've heard too many Christians take this, what I just said, and they use it as an excuse. But love does not mean that we should ever compromise truth. Love does not mean that you should compromise truth. And yet there are some in our culture that would, be, that would urge us to be tolerant of everything and everyone. In fact, tolerance seems to be championed by many as one of the greatest core values in our culture today. That if you are not tolerant, then you are the enemy. Society says everyone can make their own choice in how they live their lives, and we're all supposed to say if it's right for them, then it's all right. And really, if you go back historically, tolerance used to mean that we should leave room for others to be wrong. Does that make sense? Tolerance used to be, I leave room for others to be wrong. Now it means we need to make sure everyone can be right simultaneously. And as followers of Christ, we know that there is such a thing as absolute truth, and it's found in God's word. We talked about this with the men uh, last Thursday night as we talked about the word of God and what it represents and what it contains. And there is truth, and you can know truth. So here's the dilemma. Are we, as followers of Jesus, supposed to judge others, or aren't we? And I think this one is probably the most controversial fact check that we're going to do in this series, at least with regard to people in the church. You'll find a ton of Christian leaders and teachers who will tell you Christians should never judge others. And you will find just as many saying, it's our responsibility to judge others. So which is it? Here we go. Fact check moment. Scripture tells us we are to judge others and we are not to judge others. Hope that clears everything up. Thank you. I'll see you next week. Um, there are verses that land on one side and there are verses that land on the other. And that's what we're going to look at this morning is trying to navigate this path because it is, it's not an uncertain issue, but if you just read some verses and ignore others or you, you pay attention over here and you've never read these, if you don't get a big picture of what God says with regard to us and how we are to live our lives towards those around us, you can miss it and you can end up on one side or the other when God says it's kind of a both and. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The Bible doesn't contradict itself, so what is the answer? What is the truth? And this is the part where I'm supposed to say, you know, if I was to try to get more YouTube hits, come back next week and find out the answer. Um, but after a lot of research and searching the scripture, I would say the answer to the question, should Christians judge, is absolutely not and absolutely yes. 
So with that concrete answer in mind, I want to remind you that this judging stuff that we're talking about can really get messy. It can ruin friendships. It can damage relationships. It can drive people away from God. That's why I want to spend some time helping you understand what exactly our responsibility is when it comes to judging others. So let's start by reading Matthew 7. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Now, this verse does not tell us, you have to read this carefully, it does not say, you are not to judge. That's not what it says. It says, do not judge others, and you will not be judged. So what that, that is saying is, it's an if-then. If you do not judge others, then you will not be judged, is what that says. It is not a command. It's a statement of if-then. Does that make sense? Are you reading it properly here? Okay. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. This is the verse okay, that people know from the Bible when it comes to judging. And really, all they know is the first four words. Do not judge others. Hard stop. It's not a hard stop. It's a comma, folks. Remember, details matter to me. Okay? There is more to this verse. It does not stop there. And, and people, who, people who have never read the Bible know this verse, at least the first four words. And this teaching of Jesus is widely misunderstood or at least miscommunicated. And a common summary we often hear is, don't judge me. That's what it comes down to. Hey, the Bible says, don't judge me. What's interesting is that this simplification of this verse is the opposite application of Jesus' lesson here. Jesus is not telling others not to judge us, which is how people use it, right? No, you're not supposed to judge me. That's how people use this verse. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not telling others not to judge us. He's telling us not to judge others here, right? What, what others do is not our primary concern. What we do is our primary concern. Jesus is saying, hey, look after yourself, because our biggest problem is not how others judge us, but how we judge others. That's what God wants us to be concerned with. And this verse is pretty scary, and it should be, because judging the actions of others needs to be done very, very cautiously. Jesus did not prohibit judging others. He told us to exercise extreme caution when we do so. We're going to talk about what that looks like this morning. We know this because of what he goes on to say right after the, these verses here in Matthew 7. So we just read Matthew 7, 1 to 2. Let's look at 3 through 5. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. It is not wrong. Hear me, church. It is not wrong to, in love, help a fellow believer remove a harmful speck from their eye to help them with an issue in their life that is not biblical, they're not doing right, they're not living according to God's plan for their lives, to help them remove that. It is wrong to self-righteously point out a speck in their eye when we ignore as no big deal the ridiculous log protruding from our own, the big, ugly sin moments in our own lives that we just kind of forget about when we want to point out the flaws in other people's lives. 
That's what Jesus said is absolutely wrong. So Jesus is placing a giant red sign over others that says, caution, judge at your own risk. That's basically what this verse is telling us. It is meant to give us serious reservations and a need to examine ourselves before we say anything. Our sin nature, and we've all got one, is massively selfish and massively proud. And we don't like to identify the problems in our own lives. That's our default. And we have to discipline ourselves to think others first. And our sinful nature is also often hypocritical, judging ourselves lightly, if at all, and others incredibly severely. We're quick to strain gnats and swallow camels. You may think that's a weird metaphor, um, but this is what the Bible has to say in Matthew 23. Blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. There you go. It's scripture, folks. This is right in the middle of a lecture that Jesus is giving to the religious leaders of his day on hypocrisy because they were experts in hypocrisy. They lived it out perfectly. And when it comes to judging others and the whole speck log concept, way too many times we're quick to take tweezers to somebody else's eye when we need a forklift on our own eye. Uh, it's better to judge not than it is to judge like that since we'll be judged in the same way that we judge others. So we need to practice incredible caution when judging others. Now, here's a major key to help you determine if you should be wading into the judgment pool at all, okay? Major key right here. When we feel like God is leading us to judge someone else's actions, the goal should always be restoration. Guys, this is, this is huge. And this statement right here, basically, if you get this, everything else will fall into place. I mean, it sounds pretty straightforward, right? But we judge other people's actions all the time, and their healing and restoration is the furthest thing from our minds. Think of it this way. When it comes to our sin, God wants to forgive and restore us, right? The devil wants to condemn us. Which path do you want to take when pointing someone else's flaws out? So many times, it's not about healing and restoration. It's about condemnation. First of all, don't ever go to someone else and bring correction before you've gone to God in prayer. Don't shoot from the hip. You know, it's like parents, when you discipline your children, don't spank in anger. You know, always send them away, let things cool down, then you can go and, and bring discipline. Same way with judging. Hey, you, point, you see something in somebody else's life, and you're like, hey, I need to point that out. You know what? Let me let that sit. I'm going to go spend time with God in prayer. I'm going to focus on him and let the Holy Spirit guide me. Okay? Um, make sure God is leading you and not your hurt feelings leading you. There's way too much opportunity for our own selfish desires to sneak in there, competitive drive, pride, jealousy. All of that can cloud our judgment and lead us down a path that could be destructive both for us and for the person we're correcting. Secondly, we're supposed to judge one another's actions, not one another. It's a huge distinction here. There is no one qualified to judge anyone but God. God will judge the heart of sinners. Remember what Jesus said to the crowd when they wanted to stone the woman caught in adultery? Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone, right? 
And they all walked away. Why? Because we're all just as guilty as everyone else. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. We are all woefully short of the standard which has been set for us by God himself. We're all sinners. We've all blown it. We all need a Savior. So God may use you to point out sin in another Christ follower's life, but it always will have the goal of restoring that person, never condemning them. 2 Corinthians 13, Dear brothers and sisters, I close my letter with these last words. Be joyful, grow to maturity, encourage each other, live in harmony and peace, then the God of love and peace will be with you. And the phrase that is translated here as grow to maturity, that phrase is literally aim for restoration. Aim for restoration. It means both of those simultaneously in the Greek. There is maturity when we are always seeking restoration. It demonstrates maturity. So if your goal isn't to see someone become stronger in their faith, to become a better representation of Jesus, then you are not hearing from God. Shouldn't be the goal to punish people. God doesn't want to drive people away. He wants to lovingly restore people back to right relationship with him. I knew a pastor one time who had someone in his church who was, how do I put this delicately, not representing Jesus well, okay? Uh, and this pastor called the man into his office and called him out. And this was the first time this man had acted in this way. He called him in, called him out. So far, so good. I mean, this is biblical, with, hopefully with the goal of restoration. But then he told him that because of his behavior and because of the sin in his life, he felt it was best that if he didn't come back to the church ever again and he sent him packing. Basically, he didn't want to deal with him anymore. And I just want to challenge you, church, that's not God's heart. This pastor missed it. He felt like he was protecting his church by getting rid of a bad influence, but in reality, he was sending a message to his church that sinners don't have a place here. What we need to do is correct to point out the problem area that God has shown you and then offer to walk with them to lock arms with them and say, no matter what it takes, I'm here, I'll help, I'll pray with you, I'll cry with you, I'll fight for you, but we're in this together. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but how many people? Everyone to come to repentance. Everyone. The key part in that word is every. There is not one person whom God does not want to be forgiven. There is not one person that God doesn't want to restore. No matter how far they have fallen, no matter what they have done, hear this one, no matter what they have done to you. I'll pause to let that one sink in a little bit deeper. And that's hard to hear for some of us, isn't it? Because there are people out there who have done some pretty horrific things to you. And as a pastor, my heart breaks for you and the things that you've had done to you and the pain and the hurt that you've endured at the hands of someone else, usually someone very close to you, a spouse, a parent, a sibling. Some of you have been hurt really badly. And I want you to stop for a second and think of that person who has hurt you worse than anyone else ever has. And as you have that person in mind, you need to hear this. God wants to forgive them. That's what God's grace looks like. How do I know this? Well, the verse we just read, obviously. 
But how about this? When Jesus was hanging on the cross, when he was breathing his last few breaths on this earth, when he was suffering an agony worse than you or I could possibly imagine, what did Jesus say? He used one of those few remaining breaths that he had to pray, and this was his prayer, Father, forgive them. Who was them? It was the ones who drove the nails through his wrists. It was the ones who whipped him. The ones who were in the process of executing him. God wants to forgive everyone. And restoration should always be our goal. And sometimes our hearts are only going to get there through a lot of prayer. Okay, so this next point is one that Christians everywhere need to hear. We are never to judge non-believers by Christian standards. This is where we blow it, church. This is where the church at large messes up all the time, is we expect those outside of God's family, outside of the umbrella of those who have discovered life and restoration through Jesus and his forgiveness and his salvation, people outside of that, we expect them to conform to the standards that God has placed on us. Everything we've talked about so far this morning, I, I, I wonder if you heard the nuance of my language because I was very specific every time in saying another believer, somebody, another follower of Jesus, someone within the church. Everything we have talked about so far is for a follower of Jesus speaking into the life of another follower of Jesus. It's Christians judging the actions of other Christians. Once again, after examining yourself, making sure that your goal is their restoration. But this has all been about Jesus' followers. That's a very important distinction to make. There is a difference between someone who knows Jesus and someone who doesn't. Duh. I mean, that's pretty, pretty obvious. But that difference is not in what they do. I mean, I've seen plenty of Christians act like knuckleheads. The difference is in their hearts. The difference is the Holy Spirit. When we make the decision to follow Jesus, Scripture tells us that a fundamental transformation takes place inside, that we become a new creation, that the Holy Spirit now dwells inside us and replaces our sinful nature with his holy nature. You don't want to be judged by who you were before you met Jesus, do you? I know I don't. I don't want to be judged by who I would be outside of Christ. Why would we judge others for who they are before they have met Jesus? It's hypocritical. Don't judge me by my past. I don't live there anymore. Well, then don't judge those who are still trapped in their past and are needing to be set free by the love of Jesus. We should not be surprised when interacting with ungodly people when they act in a, wait for it, ungodly way. We lose our platform and we lose the ability to be heard when we react in this morally superior or surprised way at the sins of others. Jesus would go and dine with people who were still living in the middle of their pile of sin. They had not expressed any interest yet in transforming the way they lived. They were still smack dab in the middle of it. You don't need to accuse people. It's the devil's job to accuse and condemn. Do you really want to play on his team? Instead of joining him in that task, we should join Jesus in his search and rescue mission for the lost. Don't act surprised when lost people act like lost people. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-12, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate 
with sexually immoral people. Get this. This is Paul. And Paul just hits what I just said right on. Here we go. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. Man, I love Paul. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, a follower of Jesus, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. That's it. There is the biblical New Covenant teaching on what it looks like to judge the actions of others and what our responsibility is. Don't judge your neighbors and tell them they're going to hell because they have a sexual relationship before they are married. Or tell someone that isn't a Christian that they are in sin because they are drunk. They haven't surrendered themselves to Jesus or to his word. You can't put that on them yet. Tell them who Jesus is. Tell them about his love. Tell them about the sin problem that all mankind faces and how Jesus came to deliver us from that. Preach the gospel. Share what God has done for you. That's the place that you have in their lives right now. And besides, they're not going to hell because they do any of those things. They're going to hell because they still need to discover Jesus and his love for them. And God may open a door for you to share with them about his plan for redemption. But we've got to have a platform to share it. And let me emphasize, that opportunity does not come about because you have made them feel like you're superior. It comes because you love them. Because you wade through the mess of their lives and you find a person that's worth helping, worth spending time with. It comes because you've seen them through the eyes of Jesus. Acting judgmental toward people who are not yet believers can be hugely detrimental because it keeps us from developing some very critical traits that God wants to develop in us when it comes to how we are called to interact with the world around us. There are five really important things God wants to grow in each one of us to help us stay on mission and to help us get out of the trap of judging others, specifically those who don't know Jesus. There's five things that judging short circuits, and if developed, will prevent us from becoming judgmental, okay? So here's the first one. First one, love. Jesus said Christians should be known for how deeply we love. Yet studies show that in the eyes of many non-Christians, we're known for how deeply we judge, not for how deeply we love. Think about it through the lens of your marriage, a friendship, or even someone you work with. It is virtually impossible to love someone and judge someone at the same time. Find ways to love them in the middle of their mess. Next, help. Ever notice that people who judge almost never help and people who help almost never judge? Help kind of is mutually exclusive from judging. That's because judgment creates a line, and that line is labeled better than or smarter than or more righteous than the person who needs help. Help doesn't recognize a line like that. It just knows how to help. It knows how to serve. When Jesus taught on judgment, not only did he tell us not to judge and to remove the massive log from our own eye before trying to find the speck in someone else's eye first, but he then showed us the purpose of removing the speck from someone else's eye. It's to help them. The purpose of a follower of Jesus stepping into someone else's world is not to judge, but to help them. Next, humility. Judgment is never grounded in humility. As in, oh my, I'm also a mess. Let's figure this out together. That's not judging. That's coming alongside. 
Judgment is grounded in arrogance. That's because a judgmental person almost always carries with them a sense of condescension. Well, I never get into this kind of situation myself. You should be as good as I am, and maybe one day you'll get there. Or a sense of pity. Poor stupid you, making your poor stupid choices. Judgment almost always says, I'm better than you. I know more than you, and I'm also superior to you. No wonder people run away from that attitude. Very few people get judged into life change. Many people get loved into it. Humility says, I'm like you. I get that. Maybe we can help each other. People would run to that. Next, prayer. There's a connection between judgment and prayer. Judging someone and praying for someone are pretty much mutually exclusive. You can't pray for someone you judge because you're actually not for them. Sure, you could pray about them, but going back to the last item, your prayer won't be grounded in humility. It might be grounded in anger and arrogance and superiority, but it won't be grounded in love. You can never truly pray biblically centered for someone that you judge. And on the other side, if you want to stop judging someone, pray for them. It will change your heart. And finally, the last one is to witness. All of these together open the doors wide for sharing your faith story and for seeing God write a new story in their lives. When grace and truth are fused together, people usually run towards that because the combination of truth and grace does this. It describes a reality they're facing because people are aware of their circumstances, whether you point it out or not, they get it. It describes a reality they're facing and brings actual hope that things can get better. That's what the gospel does. God has called you to share your faith with others, to disciple them. And in order to do that, we've got to leave judgment in God's hands. Bottom line, judging other people's actions is something God has called us to do inside the body of Christ with a lot of cautions. That's what it looks like. Examine yourself first. Make sure God is leading you to do it. Pray before anything else. Check your motives. Make sure restoration is your goal. And judge actions, not the person. Judging others is difficult stuff. And it should be. Because it's not the primary role of a believer in everyday life. In fact, the only person that we should be judging on a consistent basis is the person you see in the mirror. I love what Paul wrote to the Corinthians about communion. He said, when you guys come together for communion, you are not doing it right. You're fighting with each other. You're selfish. You aren't honoring God or each other in the way you should. So he wrote this to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. In other words, the body of Christ here is the believers. We're not discerning the problems that we have in our midst. We're not discerning the impact that I'm having on someone else's life because of my judgmental behavior, because of my hypocrisy, because of the sin in my own life. And what's happening is I'm bringing problems into the body of Christ instead of help and healing. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves... Once again, start here. We would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Because right now, we have an opportunity. 
the judgment that we experience right now, the, the flaws in our lives that are pointed out, we have an opportunity to correct, to course correct, to get back on track, to begin to live biblically, to understand that we're here to represent Christ accurately to the world. But there will come a day when we will be standing before God and our actions will be judged. Fortunately, for those of us who are in Christ, our sin will not be judged because that's covered by the cross. Jesus has taken care of that. But we will have to give an account for every decision that we've made in this life. And that's going to be an intense moment when we stand before God and have to answer for the decisions that we made in this life. And so we're going to do this this morning. We're going to receive communion together, and we're going to allow everyone an opportunity to judge your own heart before God. Because here's what communion is. Communion is God's designed moment to remember what he has done for us and to examine where we stand with him and with others. If you ever want a great definition of communion, that's it. It's God's designed moment to remember what he has done for us and to examine where we stand with him and with others. So as we receive the cup, and we receive the bread, and we take that. We're remembering what Jesus did, all the symbolism involved there about the sacrifice that Jesus made. That's first and foremost. But also, at the same time, we're to examine ourselves, Paul says. Where do you stand with God? What are those sin areas in your life that need to be dealt with and addressed? What are those problem areas between you and another believer that you need to make right, that you need to get corrected, that you're harboring jealousy or bitterness or anger or judgmental attitudes, something along those lines that you say, hey, I need to repent not just to God, but to them. I need to get this right. And communion gives us that regular checkpoint to stop, to look inward, ask the Holy Spirit, search me, know me, make it right, and let's move forward together. Is your heart in right relationship with God and with others? If you are a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to receive communion with us today. If not, then I want to invite you to check your heart this morning and consider giving your life to Jesus right now. Join the family. You have an opportunity to make things right with the Lord this morning. Let's pray, and then uh, I'll give you instructions about getting the communion elements. Lord, as we come to you this morning, there are some sitting in the room right now who they are doing that self-analysis. They're examining their own heart. They're examining their own attitudes. And God, as they do that, Holy Spirit, you're pointing them in the right direction. You're pointing out those areas that we need to make right with you. You're pointing out those areas that they need to make right with someone else. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength to respond as we hear from you today. Lord, first of all, I pray for those who are identifying that they are not right in their relationship with you. And God, as they just sit there in prayer and they say, God, would you forgive me? Would you make my life right? Jesus, come into my heart again and, and restore me. I want to move forward with you. I want to live for you. I want to live biblically. I want to do what's right. God, as they, as they pray that in their own words right now, in their own hearts, God, would you make them right with you? God, let a miraculous moment happen in this room this morning as you write a new story in their lives. God, I pray that you would restore in this moment. 
And for those, God, that you're pointing out an area in their heart, in their minds, where they've, they've harbored something against someone else, another brother or sister in Christ, and they say, God, they, they're, they're aware of it now, and maybe they always have been, but God, you've pointed it out and said it's time to deal with that. Lord, I pray that you would help people all across this room to, first of all, make it right with you right now to repent and say, Lord, I'm sorry, please forgive me. But then, God, on the other side of that, Lord, let there be some reconciliation moments where people go to one another and say, hey, I need to confess this to you because I've had a bad attitude. I've had this issue in my heart. Would you please forgive me? Lord, bring healing, bring restoration, and God, let your church be in unity as it never has been before. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.